All right, this is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, I don't even know where to begin today. There's so much news we have to cover. We have to cover international affairs. We have to cover domestic affairs. But for today, we're going to return back to the Arab world and the Middle East. And just in the last week, this was just happening as we were going off air last week, there has been daily massive demonstrations going on in Lebanon in downtown Beirut. And Beirut and Lebanon are no uh, stranger to protests on the streets for decades and decades and decades. What's really interesting, Jamal, about this particular protest, it's mobilizing the entirety of the sectarian complexity of the Lebanese population. So we have Shiites, Christians, Sunnis, atheists, agnostics. We have the entirety, entire diversity, if you will, of the Lebanese populace coming to the streets. And what prompted the protest, Jamal, was the attempt by the government to tax WhatsApp, which everybody uses in the Arab world, it's the messenger of choice for everybody. The government, which is not running very well, is having massive cash flow problems, decided to tax all the calls on WhatsApp. The Lebanese would have no part of it, Jamal. And now, since about a week ago up until today, there's been this massive outpouring of demonstrations against the corrupt, ineffective Lebanese government government that has been mobilized by, you know, all Lebanese. It's really amazing. Well, it's more of a global affair, Jess, and we'll, we'll focus, of course, on, on Lebanon. For but, the time uh, being, yeah. You know, uh, you have Chile, uh, the spark there was an increase in subway fares. Right. In Lebanon, it was tax on WhatsApp calls, right? Then uh, in India, it was about onions. No, no, I'm talking like people, if you look at so many things, they have mass demonstrations, of course, st still ongoing in Hong Kong, in Bolivia, in Barcelona, in Spain, in Barcelona, uh, you have also demonstrations, Iraq, and uh, of course, Russia, also they had the demonstrations, and before that, the Czech Republic. Uh, so we're seeing a pattern here I mean, it's almost like, in a way, synchronized uh, unintentionally, you know, so we can say, you know, from Lebanon to Chile or from Chile to Lebanon, that uh, the world has been experiencing mostly driven by young people and then later on uh, the masses. And in Lebanon, it's not any different because it's all about inequality and corruption by the government. I mean, if you want to, if you if you want to boil it down to two things, right? It's corruption, and it's also inequality, and that's the higher taxation, and a lot of uh, people are getting away with, technically, with murder. You know, uh, well, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Uh, literally and figuratively in these countries. So, so if we go back to Lebanon, uh, as you know, uh, we mentioned that briefly. Uh, last week, or I think the week before, uh, the Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri survived a recent embarrassing uh, revelations about a $16 million gift to a bikini model uh, whom he met at the luxury resorts in the Seychelles in 2013. I don't know what happened to that story. People are not talking that much about it, but it was, a, it was a big news. At the same time, he was imposing austerity measures on the average Lebanese, right? And then maybe the, the last event was the, uh, that kind of pushed everyone over the edge. Over the edge. What's the tax on WhatsApp? What's the tax on WhatsApp? So, so now the demonstrators have been on the streets for a week, more than a week. We're getting to week two, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much so. But don't you think it's interesting that you have such a, cross-section of Lebanese society, Jamal, because historically Lebanon, especially in this last 40 years, has been a very fractured society because it's, ba you know, the government is based on sectarian divisions, you know, 
One sect gets the prime minister, one sect gets the president, another sect gets another minister. It's based on patronage. And well, well, we should take it a bit further and explain the political system that was actually created because of uh, um, the Vichy government of France. In fact, that's during the colonial era, and in particular during the Vichy government right. of France, which, uh, of course, taking it even further down the line to the Sykes-Picot agreement and the prime minister of France and the prime, I mean, no, the foreign minister of France and the foreign minister of uh, England drawing the map of the Middle East and basically creating Lebanon and, of course, the border of Syria, Jordan, etc. So the system that the French left based on the sectarian system, you, you're speaking about that the president in Lebanon has to be always a Maronite Christian. The prime minister is a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of the house or the parliament, speaker of the parliament there, is a Shiite uh, Muslim. Nabih Berri currently is the, and he has been there for years, uh, the speaker in Lebanon. And then you have the Saad al-Hariri, he's the prime minister. And Michel Aoun is the uh, current president, right? So both, I mean, of course, the demographics, and I don't know if, if even the, the, the demographics were a factor back when Lebanon was created. But, I don't but think so. certainly demographics have changed as far as uh, uh, the population because due to immigration and other factors that why people question why, you know, we have that sectarian system rather than having a secular system and, a democ and, and this is part of now of the slogans that we've been uh, uh, seeing that people are questioning A, it's like, do we want to continue the way we have been continuing because this creates pockets of different sects who pretty much so have formed their own communities, communities and favoritism and, and you know, Patronage. Patronage. Right. And do, or do we want to end it? And, and, be de and be truly democratic. Be truly democratic. So that's one of the major main demands. Of course, the, the real demand, even though we've heard from the Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri, we've heard also from the President saying, I'm listening to you, both of them. Let's sit down and talk. They're not uh, buying it. But they're not buying it. They still keep going you know, to the streets, started in Beirut. Now we're seeing massive demonstrations in Tripoli. We're seeing massive demonstrations in the south. And I would say by large, there have been peaceful demonstrations, very few incidents of uh, attacks by the Lebanese security or police. But, uh, you know, for these sizes and massive demonstrations, people have been, and, and and we're not only talking about secular, but we're talking about Lebanese from all wakes of life, uh, driven by a lot of young people. And by the way, um, gender equal, I would say, both women and men That's are leading these right. marches. And I would say uh, the Western media, media has been preoccupied by uh, the silly things, you know, the Lebanese dancing in the streets, the dubke or... Uh, uh, you know, men with know. their shirts off dancing. Yeah, men, that's, you know, that's the main picture. And, and, and they're not paying attention to the nuances, which which basically uh, what we we spoke about earlier, which is really the it's a struggle between the haves and the have-nots. I think that's uh, exactly right, Jamal. And one of the things that uh, is true in Lebanon, and when as it is for most parts of the Arab world, and we're going to talk about how that connects with Chile, with Bolivia, with what's happening in Barcelona. Um, and we've been talking about this for some time, but now it's spilling out into action. It's, it's just not the corruption and the inequality, but it's the income inequality that's really at the heart of this. Because especially in Lebanon, for example, when you have the Hariri family and uh, Saad al-Hariri is one of not just the richest man in Lebanon, but he's one of the richest men in the world. I mean, he's a multi-multi-billionaire. And um, the amount of Lebanese who are living in poverty has grown exponentially because of the income inequality, fewer and fewer people having more money. 
But also, let's not forget, Jamal, that we have, what, a million and a half to two million Syrian refugees also living in Lebanon right now. So Lebanon is in a very precarious situation. We see the political dynamics coming from uh, the, the Trump administration having an impact on this, and we'll be getting to that a little bit later. But the net, net of this, this, to my memory, and you'll have to correct me, is really the first time that all of these different factions, all of these different sects, all of these different identities have come together, Jamal, and they're flying one flag, the flag of Lebanon. This is a, we are proud to be Lebanese no matter what, and we're tired of corruption, we're tired of the government, but we're tired about the income inequality that exists in Lebanon. And historically, Jamal, I mean, Lebanon had been one of the most prosperous of Arab countries in the region, but it's in trouble now economically. It really well, it's is. It's been in trouble for many, yeah, many years, and and you could see basically the writing is on, on the, the wall. Is on the wall, absolutely, and the writing is in those banners and the placards that the protesters have been carrying. So I've been watching all these different things, whether been uh, things sprayed on the walls. Down with the rule of the mafia. That's one slogan uh, that you can see all over Beirut. Uh, thief or thieves, uh, you know, the Lebanese, when you talk to them, when you see them uh, through interviews, uh, the protesters, they've been saying that their politicians have stolen tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars from them. Which aided is true. by laws that allow bank secrecy, so that's the other thing, the Bank of Lebanon. So, uh, so that's they've been challenging challenging this. Hundreds of thousands of them have taken to the street, as we know. Now, now we're entering into into week two, which is really the biggest protest to sweep the country in over a decade. And and the message is one. The message is really targeting the politicians. I think at the end of the day, I mean, there is a main demand for the government to basically to de dissolve it itself. But they're also asking for accountability. Yes. So when you see Hariri going to say, okay, we're, we're hearing you. Okay, we're going to cancel the tax uh, on WhatsApp. That's not the issue. This is like... I'm using a cliche, the last hay that broke the camel's back. Right. Right. But you have a bigger problem. Right. Because people now, they want accountability. They want to know where are all these millions and billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. Have gone. Yeah. And, and they want to know who's, who's going to be held accountable. They, they have also another slogan, uh, which means, where did you get this from? You know, so there, that's a question mark. How did you how did you acquire? How did you get your all money? The, all this wealth, exactly. Yeah, where did exactly. you get this money? Exactly. When they know the background or the history of a politician entering into into parliament, basically penniless, and a year down the line, he's a millionaire. He he or she is building villas and having uh, vacation homes in France, in the south of France and in Italy and other places. So people want these politicians to be held, you know, they basically want accountability. The economy, Jess, and this is also, Lebanon is a young society yes. and a very educated society. It reminds me in many ways of Tunisia and the atmosphere in Tunisia because with the Tunisian revolution, you had all these young people, educated people with under undergraduate degrees with graduate degrees educated in France and in European countries coming back to the country and not finding a job. So the Lebanese uh, economy has been stagnating, right, for years. They have one, and this is, this is again, if people don't know something about Lebanon, just Google it and look at its size on the map. It's a so very, small. very small country. They have one of the world's highest debt to GDP ratios and economists has been uh, have been for years warning about a collapse a, a total economic collapse they they really have been living again we talk about tunisia as far as unemployment and now i i use another example which is greece as far as debt uh, high debt ratio they've been living on debt just borrowed time really borrowed money and 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 borrowed time and then on top of this aside from 
increasing the taxes on them on WhatsApp, the uh, banks have restricted the withdrawal of U.S. dollars. Yeah. And, as, and, and not only have restricted That's the withdrawal of U.S. Problem, dollars, yeah. but they, they are forcing people to withdraw them in the Lebanese lira. In other words, um, they're fixing the exchange rate, right? Uh, you know, which is much lower than than having it done in the, on a, on the street, basically. The right. Exchange. So people are losing; uh, they're losing value, and and many of those uh, uh, many of these Lebanese families depend on you know siblings and family members sending money from abroad, be it from the U.S. in U.S. dollars or from Europe in, in the euro. And so on top of that poverty and stagnation, high un unemployment, they're also penalizing them, right. you know, even further. So here's, I have a comment and then a question. The comment is, is just that uh, the probably one of the only reasons why the economy hasn't totally collapsed is because it's being funded in part by uh, Gulf money. So money from the Gulf, from Saudi Arabia, from UAE, has been coming into underwriting the debt of, uh, of Lebanon for many years right However, now. just the beneficiaries are the few. Are the few. Yes, it creates some uh, employment on the lower level. Bureaucrats. And for, you know, people going to restaurants and uh, people working in hotels. That's it. Uh, to accommodate the rich people coming from the Gulf. But the people who have been making most of the money, like the Hariri family, are the owners of these establishments. That's right. The owners of the hotels and right. resorts and wherever. And they're not your average Lebanese, no. right? So that, that's kind of my point is because the money's being floated by other countries. If those other countries, primarily Gulf countries, decide that they no longer want to float the money, that collapse could come, could come much sooner. So here's the big question, Jamal, that we – we should talk about. I'm not ready to say this is Arab Spring, even though it's the fall, Arab spall, uh, Fall Spring 2.0 or 3.0, because I think it's too early to say that. But I think Hariri and the corrupt government have two choices right now. So one choice is to dissolve the government and let a true democratic process unfold. The second is to use the Algerian, Egyptian, uh, uh, model, which is to have a massive crackdown using the police and the military. And I don't think like Egypt or like Algeria or even like Tunisia that the Egyptian military is ready to take to the streets and do to the Lebanese population what happened in, uh, in Egypt, what al-Sisi did, or what happened in Algeria, or what happened in some of these other failed Arab Spring situations. I think, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like the people have the upper hand. Do you believe that the Lebanese army is going to take to the streets and start arresting thousands of people, beating people up, and for Hariri to do an al-Sisi in Lebanon? I don't see it. No, no, no it's not going to happen. And uh, they've... Uh, you know, like I, as I've said, by and large, these have been very peaceful demonstrations, very few incidents of uh, beatings by the police, etc. But, and also messages both from the Prime Minister uh, Saad al Hariri and uh, Michelle Aoun, the, the, the president, saying, we, we hear you. It's not enough. We want to sit down, we want to listen to you. So I don't think it's going to turn into violence. Also, you haven't been seeing, for example, the flags of Hezbollah, right? No, it's a Lebanese you're, you're flag. You're saying Lebanese, even though there, has, there have been some pockets of demonstrations showing some, but not that much. And uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah also said that something has to be done. Reforms have to be implemented. And he said, we're, we're not going to go out on the streets. We may go out on the streets. I don't know what their list of demands. But I think as long as these demonstrations say, stay the same about the economy, about corruption, and no exterior influence. influence, and that's the key word because we have been seeing some of this 
some of those actors trying to turn Lebanese against each other. They have failed. Like, so far. To see if we can mobilize, for example, these demonstrations to disarm Hezbollah. Some have been, and, and most of these people have been talking from outside the country, by the way. Right. Because I've been monitoring this online and, and I've been seeing some chatter. If you hear the messages from the Lebanese people, for example, people have been chanting for the liberation of Palestine. You don't see that that often. People actually have been demonstrating because when you leave Arabs demonstrate peacefully on their own and you th uh, their Arab nationalism starts to show and their unity and this is one of the main issues is Palestine is Palestine you start hearing like for example their support because they see now they see how the Palestinians have been suffering for seven decades under occupation and under severe conditions you and you see them freely you see them speaking freely without censorship that's right and without sectarian messages that's right you see the real Lebanese people talking and they have been receiving support from the Palestinians because you talked about the Syrian refugees in Lebanon there are 400,000 Palestinian refi refugees who live in Lebanon and they're also are standing in support absolutely uh, with their brothers and sisters but she didn't answer the question which if they don't dissolve the government and it doesn't turn out to be a vicious military put down of the so far uh, peaceful demonstrations, then I don't think, Jamal, that the Lebanese population is going to be satisfied with Saeed uh, Hariri, Saad, Saad Hariri saying, we're listening to you. That's not going to be enough. What's going to happen? Are Hariri and uh, Barry going to step down? Probably not. Is Lebanon truly going to move toward a real democracy? Probably not. So what's going to happen next? Well, you're asking a very sensitive question because you're asking, are we going to have a civil war? Basically. Because this is the other alternative. Yeah. I mean, I mean then you're taking us back to the 80s and 90s when you actually had... An uh, ugly civil war. Ugly civil war and, and, and basically... Uh, warlords fighting amongst each other. I don't believe so. I believe that the people in, in the streets are not going to go back home until their demands are answered. But they're big demands. And they are big demands. They might not receive all their demands, but certainly they are not going to be silenced by empty promises. So uh, as long as the government just keeps saying, oh, we're going to do we're this. we're listening and, to you. And we're listening to you. That's, that, that, they're not going to go back. That's they're not, not enough. Go back. Yeah. And I think it would be very, very stupid for the government, and I'm talking about the prime minister or the president, to take a violent action towards these demonstrators. I don't think it would work. And this would lead basically now to an armed struggle, which I don't see it heading that way. Yeah. So they are going to let them demonstrate. They are going to shuffle probably seats in the government, but they have to come back because it is not enough to say, we were gonna have some, we, we, we're, gonna, we're gonna lift some of those austerity measures and we're going to shuffle some members of the government that's and not let gonna them do slide. That's not going to do so it. So might, there might be some certain members who will be sacrificed to show the public that we've listened to you. I don't think and, that's enough. And, and we're, we're answering your question about accountability. Yeah, I'm not sure that's going to be enough. Will all the government dissolve itself? I think it's going to be just reshuffling of seats. There'll be some measures taken on the Bank of Lebanon. There'll be, of course, there'll be cancellation of the order. They said that they canceled the tax on the WhatsApp. And I, I think it's going to be a bigger thing that they'll have. They'll, the, Lebanon needs a big injection of money, which will probably come through the World Bank or through Gulf states, because also it's against the interest, you see. And, and this is the danger where the you know the interfe interference in the affairs of Lebanon because we've seen before those events when they tried to split the street 
between the Hezbollah supporters and the anti-Hezbollah. And then we saw the Saudis playing a dirty game from behind and others. But, but that's if, the, if, if the Lebanese allow this to happen, then we have a problem. But well, I don't think but, they're going to fall for that. that. I was just going to say that, Jamal. You took the words right from me. I mean, my biggest worry is not Saad al-Hariri. My biggest worry is not Nabil Berri. My biggest worry are not the people of Lebanon. It's Saudi Arabia. It's the Gulf countries and Iran and the United States and the Israelis, all of whom are using Lebanon as a ground for this proxy war that has been going on in Lebanon for, you know, many decades now, from before the 80s into the 80s and to where we are now. You have the hands, you have the Israeli Mossad and the Israeli uh, intelligence services all over Lebanon. You have the Saudi Arabia and the Gulf influence. You have the Iranian influence. You have so many outside influences there, Jamal. And I think Lebanese are saying, Khalas, enough is enough. We want to run Lebanon. I don't see, I guess I'm not as optimistic as you. I don't see an easy way out of this. Um, by the way, you are listening to Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco at 89.5 FM. Uh, you're also streaming live. We're streaming live on Jamal Dejani too. We welcome our Facebook Live uh, viewers. And we're streaming from uh, kpoo.com uh, from that website. I guess I'm just not as optimistic as you, Jamal, because I really believe this is a, um, a an awakening of sorts for the people of Lebanon and that younger generation who are sick and tired of the sectarian divisions and sick and tired of outside influences uh, running the show in Lebanon. And I don't see an easy way out. I don't see uh, placating the people who are protesting with dropping the WhatsApp tax as really being enough. People are living in poverty, income inequality, unemployment rates, as you said, there's a cash crisis in Lebanon right now because can't, you can't even take your money out in dollars. So we're, we have to follow this story, Jamal, because, okay, here's the reason why we're talking about it. This is not an isolated event because we were talking about protests in Egypt on a much smaller scale. We're talking about what's happening in Chile, in Bolivia, in Barcelona. So something Something is going on right now globally that is suggesting that the, it's too, too early to say tipping point, but the impact of global income inequality uh, is starting to bubble up, we see globally right now. And I think Lebanon will be a, uh, a flashpoint. In the past, unfortunately, outside of Tunisia, many leaders and despots of the Arab world have solved this problem with uh, military intervention and bloodshed, like, like Egypt, unfortunately. Tunisia is still our best model for what happened after the Arab Spring. We can only hope that the Lebanese government will follow the Tunisian model and not the Egyptian model for what's going to happen next. That's right. And we're going to uh, switch gears and we talk are. about a nearby issue which is basically still ongoing in Syria yeah. and with the Kurds in, in Syria I'm, and, I'm, and Turkey because Jamal, this I'm will also influence, influence you know, what happens in, in Lebanon. Because can I just, yeah, can I just tell you how tired I am of the American media's portrayal of what's happening? It's for, for people who are listening or watching us right now, if you're watching any kind of media, mainstream media, even progressive media, Jamal, everybody's getting the story of Syria and Turkey wrong right now. And I'm happy to say that in all humility, we, I think we're doing as good, if not better job, kind of breaking down what's happening there. We're the only ones that are saying, hey, not all Kurds are the same. You have the Kurdish population is very diverse. There's lots of diverse influences. So um, I'm not ready to jump on the bandwagon of saying, you know, what we're hearing in the mainstream media. Well, I mean, nevertheless, we can all agree that uh, President Trump threw 
the Kurds under the bus. He threw some Kurds under the bus. Some, because they've made promises. And uh, on Wednesday, he, uh, uh, President Trump announced that Turkey had agreed to a permanent ceasefire in northeast Syria, claiming that the United States was bringing peace to the region after decades of uh, That's so failed bogus. efforts. So, That's so, so Trump bogus. now wants to take credit That's for so bringing peace after he threw, in my opinion, he threw the Kurds Some under, Kurds. under the bus. And now he's saying that we have permanent peace, which is totally bogus because just this morning I was like watching the Kurds saying, no, uh, we're still know, getting shot the, at. The Turks haven't stopped Stop. bombing us. And he's saying now we have permanent peace. We're having peace after decades. But he know. also missed the fact that Erdogan and Putin met yesterday, and they're the ones that decided what's going to happen. And, and these are his words, by the way. Turkey, Syria, and all forms of the Kurds have been fighting for centuries. Not true. <laughs> Not true. False. You know, he said that we have done them a great service, and we've done a great job for all of them, and now we're getting out. Let someone else fight over this long blood-stained sand. That's so racist, man. These are his words. Let someone so else fight over this long blood-stained sand, and we're out of, you know, we're, we're, we're getting out of there. And uh, breaking news, Jamal, it had nothing to do with Donald Trump. It had everything to do with Erdogan and Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin and Erdogan met yesterday. They decided what they were going to do. Fundamentally, they're the ones that solved the equation. This has nothing to do with the United States. And um, what we're seeing, Jamal, and I said this last week and the week before, what we're seeing in Donald Trump's I don't even know the right adjective to use, is a complete reconfiguration potentially of the entire region because of this one move that he made to well, allow Erdogan in. Well, also, we can't let uh, Obama off the hook. We shouldn't. Because Obama was the one who dragged the United States in the into, first place. In, into, in the first place. So, yes. so this whole mess and all those countries who have been participating in this proxy war that they've created in Syria. The issue of the Kurds is the latest. I mean, yeah. there are several issues. I mean, now everyone is like saying, oh, the poor Kurds, the poor Kurds. It's not well, about guess, the Kurds. Well, guess what? Half the population of Syria is either displaced or made refugee in neighboring countries. Thank you. Guess what? You know how many Syrians have died in the past three years? Uh, Close to 400,000 Syrians that's have right. died. And, and, they're no not and, necessarily, no and they're not necessarily Kurds. They're not necessarily Muslims. They're not necessarily Christians. From all sects of the Syrians have been killed because of this proxy war and because of these mercenaries, a.k.a. ISIS and others, who have been let through the porous borders between Iraq into Syria, by the way, Iraq, and Turkey into Syria. So can we just say, Jamal, because you're exactly right. You know, it started with Bush, obviously, with the destruction of Iraq and the destabilization of the region in Afghanistan and Iraq, which led to the emergence of ISIS. But, and, and you're 100% correct, we cannot let Obama off the hook. It's Obama that fomented and continued to create this proxy war in Syria that resulted in close to 400,000 Syrians being killed and murdered. So, hello, um, uh, wake up, everybody. You need to know your history a little bit better. Uh, I'm going to say something very unpopular, Jamal, very unpopular. It's not the first time. <laughs> <laughs> this catastrophic thing that Trump did could lead to the unification eventually of Syria again. Because our whole, the whole point and what we've been arguing for many years now, let the Syrians decide what to do with Syria. We shouldn't let the Americans or the Russians or the Iranians or the Turks or the Gulf countries decide what Syria is about. Syrians need to decide this for themselves. Absolutely. But this is what uh, Turkey is going to be doing, uh, Justin. I think this is what will lead. We talked about it earlier. Turkey now, for example... Uh, they're creating a 20 miles, a 20 mile zone. Trump from, calls it from, a peace zone. Fr from, from the borders 
around the Kobani area, between Kobani area and uh, Tal Abed. And also, they are maintaining another area they have captured before, which is more than actually 20 miles. They've been breaking this on the map in different areas. And another third area, Turkey and Russia will be patrolling a six-mile strip border, which starts from Ras Al Ain to uh, Kamishli. So basically, the border line between Syria and Turkey, right. it will be under Turkey. So you're talking about anywhere between 20 and 26 miles or, or 6 and 26 miles actually zone will be mostly under the control of Turkey. Yeah, but for how so long creating, of a border? Well, listen, they're creating a buffer zone. They're creating supposedly a buffer zone. And, and you know what's going to happen? Turkey has a million and a half or more. How many? Almost Syrian, two million almost Syrian two refugees. Almost million Syrian refugees. I believe this is a way for Erdogan to get rid of them out of his Absolutely. country. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. you know, in Turkey, in Turkey, they were making it easy, easy, easy and, and in a sad way and uh, to have all, basically dumping all these Syrian refugees onto Greece, right, and exploiting them, putting them in these uh, boats that are not seaworthy, and uh, hundreds of them have been drowning in the Mediterranean, right. trying to make it into Europe through Greece. Now, because the Greeks have have been, with the Italians, have started to intercept these boats. Right. They, they just can't take any more. They were going mostly to the island of Lesbos, right? You could see pictures of leftover uh, rafts and... Uh, small, small craft, yeah. Small crafts, right, scattering the beaches there. And now they're saying we can't, we just can't. Before they were welcoming, actually, the Greeks were welcoming them with open arms. Now they said, listen, we're a poor country. We cannot take any more. So now Erdogan is going to push them into Syria, into that security zone. Right. He's going to get rid of right. all these refugees back. And we don't know what's going to happen because, as, because assuming that's going to be a safe zone, but then if he withdraws... A vacuum will be created, it and then they will, be uh, they will be slaughtered all over again. So there is a game that Turkey is playing. Yeah. It's not, it's not doing it because of the love of Syrians. the Syrians. No. And it is not doing it because of its own security, but rather, I mean, there are two, two parts, because when you talk about also the Kurds there, Erdogan is going after the PKK, right, members of the PKK who have now moved into Syria right. and who are considered uh, terrorists by NATO, the United States, EU. the EU, etc. He's going really after them. But with this delicate peace, ceasefire, I would say, delicate ceasefire. Yeah. Here, here's the other part. And it's this, not going to hold, in it, my opinion. No, I agree with you. And here's the problem. We... You, and this is not defending Erdogan at all because what he's doing is setting up the possibility of, of a really horrific slaughter of Syrians. But let's not forget that the United States and the EU, Jamal, promised to give Turkey and Erdogan tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to support the um, Syrian refugees that he was taking care of. And guess what? That money never came. The money never came. So Erdogan was forced, and his economy is not doing, I mean, Turkey's economy is doing okay, but it's not doing great. And whether or not they could continue to financially do this without the support of the EU, I mean, basically Erdogan was saying, EU, you promised this money. Part of what I, part of the deal is we keep them in Turkey so that they don't go to the EU. That's problematic in another way. We'll have that discussion later. The EU says, okay, we'll give you the money. The United States promises money. It never came. So this, this geopolitical chess match that's going on is very complicated. And it's all going to come down to, I think, whether or not when that vacuum occurs, who's going to fill it first. Interesting thing, Jamal, your friend Donald Trump said, we won, we succeeded, the Americans are, the American, 500 American forces have, are going back to Iraq. He, he also said, oh, by the way, we're going to keep 100 in Syria to protect the oil, not to protect people, but we're going to protect the oil. We don't care that thousands are going to get slaughtered, but we want to protect the oil. 
Well, at least he's very honest about this. We know because that wasn't the case when for, George, with, with Bush. George Bush but the talking thing, about why we were uh, why we invaded Iraq. Basically, but, but the point I wanted to make is that as soon as uh, George, uh, as soon as um, uh, uh, Trump said that, oh, our Americans are going to go back to Iraq and work with the Iraqis, the Iraqi Prime Minister said, "Hey, you guys can't stay here. Americans can stay here for maybe two weeks or maybe a month, and then you got to go." So the turmoil and the chaos and the upset, if you will, geopolitically, that's being created not just in Syria, Jamal, but in Iraq, in Turkey, to some extent in Afghanistan right now, because we, we didn't even talk about Afghanistan, we will, this is just so unstable right now that the possibility of something bad happening it could happen in a heartbeat. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. We also welcome our listeners on Facebook and our viewers on uh, Facebook Live. Yes, and I'm so happy that he admitted that he was protecting the oil of Syria. So talking about some local politics now because, of course, the impeachment is ongoing and talking about Trump taking credit for things he hasn't accomplished or making or basically lying because uh, the newest thing was taking credit for building the wall in Colorado. He built a wall in Colorado. So, so I didn't know that our borders with Mexico uh, included Colorado, Jess. This I, is something I, new. I missed that uh, in my geography lessons. Uh, I didn't know that Colorado shared a border with Mexico, Jamal. That's news to me. So because you were saying, he said, <laughs> oh, you know, we're taking credit. These Kurds and Arabs and Turkey, they've been fighting for, for decades. No, and centuries. For, and for the, for the very first time, I've managed to bring them peace and uh, ceasefire. Uh, we're pulling out of there. You know, we're getting the hell out of that uh, uh, blood sand. Blood Blood soaked sand. I mean, which is kind of a crazy... Well, racist. You know, racist comment. And then, in the same, on the same day, he's giving another speech talking about, you know, because people keep asking him, what about the wall? He said, you're going to build the wall. So, yeah, we're building the wall. We finished the wall in Colorado. And now look at the wall in Colorado. <laughs> and I'm like, what? So, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to say, to tell you the truth. Here's what I have to say, Jamal. Here's what we can say. These are all meant to distract from Donald Trump's real problem. This, I, I hate to say this because the reality of what's happening in Turkey right now and in Syria and Iraq and in Afghanistan is so devastating. Um, but actually, Donald Trump doesn't care about brown people in those areas. He doesn't care about Arabs. He doesn't care about Turks. He doesn't care about Kurds. He really doesn't care. What he cares about is cutting a deal with uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine getting caught and now caught with his pants down because he, when Ambassador Taylor said, and Ambassador Taylor gave his testimony on Tuesday, Jamal, basically said, hey, I took copious notes. I'm here to tell you that Donald Trump basically told President Zelensky with Rudy Giuliani and the three amigos, Ambassador uh, Sondland, uh, of the EU, they basically said, yeah, if you don't dig dirt on the Bidens, we're not going to give you $400 million in money that was already authorized by the Congress. A perfect quid pro quo, a perfect conditional uh, shadow foreign policy uh, that is impeachable. So the, the news is, Jamal, he's going to get impeached in the House. Right. And he is throwing up all these crazy things so people don't understand and see the guy's in trouble. It looks like also your friend Rudy Giuliani <laughs> is going to get indicted. I think he will. You know. I think he will. Yeah. Well, the rumor is, is Rudy Giuliani is looking for a good defense attorney. Because as it turns out, everybody in Rudy Giuliani's circle is either being investigated, indicted, or is in jail right now. So his Ukraine circle... Furnas and Furman, Parnas and Furman, they're in jail. Uh, they pleaded not guilty. And um, other people are being investigated. This is 
We're, I mean, he's going to get impeached, Jamal. There's no doubt. It's just whether or not in the Senate you're going to find 20 well, senators. Well, in the Senate, I don't think you'll find You uh, won't 20 find senators, 20 senators. But he'll definitely, because we were talking about it, if the impeachment will do any good for the Democrats or any good for the country, because it will probably consume the next 12 months. At least, yeah. Uh, going through th these proceedings. And uh, when it was questionable before, now listening to the Speaker uh, of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and others, they're going through with it. It's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen. And they haven't started. It's all under now. It's all, well, they've started all the investigations and collecting evidence and what have you. But then when you, when you start the actual impeachment proceedings, yeah. that's all that we're going to be dealing with in right. this country. Right. No, right? I, I think that's right, Jamal, and it's going to suck all the oxygen out of the room. The, the government will become paralyzed. Nothing will get done. Um, I think we're headed for a pretty dark moment. Uh, I think, I mean, not that it's not very dark right now, but things are and it was interesting to listen to some of the analysis at the global level because it, it does seem that this political and power vacuum has been created in the United States and internationally. And the Russians and the Chinese political and military uh, machines are like trying to rush in and take advantage of the United States' weakness right now. We see that in the Arab world and Middle East. Well, we that's see it why in, we see it in Africa. That's why, for example, with, when in, in, we didn't talk about this, but I've noticed something very not unusual because because it's also probably uh, a wise thing. Nancy Pelosi went to Jordan. Yeah, I saw that. And she uh, she met with the part, king. It was part actually of a longer trip, but her brother passed away. Yeah, that actually the number uh, three ranking most powerful person in the United States is doing the job of the president and the vice president of the United States. And the secretary of state. And the secretary of state. <laughs> She's doing all three jobs. I, I, just, I just would have liked to be a fly on the wall to hear that conversation going to meet with allies and partners or whatever and say, hey, we have this. <laughs> what is this guy doing in the White House? Should we believe is this is, uh, is, this is the foreign policy of the United States, I think she's going around saying, listen, we're dealing with this, especially like with uh, King Abdullah of Jordan. Right. Uh, I want to assure you, you are a partner. You're not going to be thrown under the bus like the Kurds. We don't know that. And I, I think that's what she's doing. I'm sure she's doing it, but I don't think that Abdullah or anybody else can be assured. Um, oh, gosh, we. I wanted to just kind of, since we're in the region of Jordan, Jamal, I just wanted to say that your your favorite uh, politician, Bibi Netanyahu, we he failed to form a government, which was expected. Which which was expect, expected. Now Benny Glantz has Gantz, Gantz has got thirty days to try to form a government. So my question to you: I know you follow the Israeli media. I'm not a betting man. I don't think you are. Are you betting that Benjamin Netanyahu is out? Completely, or does he still? I mean, is he going to jail, or is he going to stay in the Knesset? Which way is it going to go? Well, it depends on Gantz, and it's also it's not guaranteed that Gantz will succeed because. And again, then they'll do another election. Again, the kingmaker is uh, Avigdor Lieberman, right? And so he does have the thirty days, and I think it was a, I would say, a smart trick by uh, the president of Israel to allow Netanyahu to go first because right. he didn't want to give him 60 days, you know, right. time to come up with this. He said, okay, I'll give you the respect since you are the prime minister <laughs> and it was a close election. You go first. You go first, right. And so he's exhausted. He has exhausted his 30 days and now Gantz has 30 days. And by the way, I think he can ask for another week extension. Right. And he has been planning for the past 30 days, uh, but it's still not guaranteed. It's not 100 percent. And if he doesn't if he doesn't succeed, they will go for another round of elections. However, Jess. But you didn't say what was going to However, 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 there is now discussion inside the Likud questioning whether if they went 
to another round of elections uh, if they'll keep Netanyahu as the head? Yeah. Or should they try their luck with another leader? So in a way, if this happens, he's finished. Because if his own party is now saying, you know what, you've been trying, trying, let's try with someone else, They're go they are going to sideline him and try to kind of make a make a comeback with another um, yeah. person uh, who will challenge him for the leadership of the Likud. I have a feeling that Gantz will strike a deal because if you listen to his words, he's been saying everything that Avigdor Lieberman wants to hear. Yeah. Like everybody's getting excited. I'm not excited. Are you excited? No. Gantz coming into power? With Avigdor I mean, Lieberman, I no. I mean, it's like another side of the same coin. No, but he's going to he's going to give Avigdor Lieberman. Uh, Lieberman the first thing, the first he's going to give him a lot of power. The first thing that Netanyahu, I mean, Gantz has said in the past two, three days that he is not moving a single settlement. settler or settlement from out of the West Bank. Right. So how is that different? So that's not any different. And so I think he's not speaking to the Israelis, all Israelis. He's speaking also to Lieberman because he's the king of the settlers. Right. Lieberman is their grand godfather of the settlers. Right. So, so he's trying to kind of show him that I'm going to be tough on the Palestinians. We're not going to move the settlements. I'm, I'm for keeping uh, Gaza in a, in a prison, basically. And maybe try to form a coalition with him so in order to succeed, he needs him. Well, on that note, we want to thank our listeners again. We've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco, 89.5 FM. You can uh, follow us at our, uh, all of our podcasts at our website, ArabTalkRadio.com, and also follow us on Twitter as well as Facebook at Jamal Dejani, too. We'll see you all next week. See you next week. <laughs>